T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Mike's on. He's ready to go. On the fan. New York Sports Radio. Mike's on. Mike's on. He'll get you the sports any way that he can. It's Mike Francis on. WFAN, this is Mike Zahn on a Wednesday afternoon after an easy Yankee win. We'll be here until 7. The NBA Finals begin tomorrow night, so we open the program with the commissioner of the NBA, Adam Silva. Adam, welcome. How are you? I'm great. Thank you, Mike. My pleasure. Good to talk to you, commissioner, as always. Uh, you know, I was thinking as we were just uh, waiting for the Yankee uh, stuff to finish, I was thinking... 20 years ago, if I had thought about a Golden State-Toronto final, a lot of people would have had a hard time even envisioning such a thing. Do you know that the first NBA game ever took place in Toronto? Knicks versus true? the Huskies. November of 1946. Thing? You know, you it's, thought it's about been a long the days, time coming. You thought about the days of uh, everyone thinking you had to have the Celtics, the Lakers, the Knicks, etc., uh, and just what Golden State has built uh, and now Toronto, is there any impact at all? Anything? Does it mean anything? Is it significant that Toronto is in an NBA final? I think it's highly significant that it's our, our first time we have one, our NBA final, one of our NBA finals teams that's based outside the United States. But I think more importantly, it demonstrates that in this day and age, because of digital media and social media, where everyone can watch a game on their phone, wherever they are, that the size of the market has become much less relevant. And to your point, you know who you know we were we're part of a league we the nba where three teams lakers celtics and bulls have been in 60% of our finals and there was a long history of large market dominance and i think it's very much changed because the players recognize that it's all about winning at this point and that even in terms of the economics of the sport that the way our salary cap is structured that the the benefits are going to come from winning regardless of the market they're in and whether you're Giannis Antetokounmpo or Kawhi Leonard in Toronto, you can be a global celebrity and a world-renowned player, regardless of the size of the market that the games are taking place in. Clearly, that's been one of the biggest changes in all the sports is the idea of market dominance. Now, when you think in recent years, the biggest stars have been in Green Bay, have been in Indianapolis, have been in Cleveland, have been in Golden State. So clearly, no longer do you have to come to a big city to become a worldwide brand. That's long, long gone. So, and, and, that, and that does change things. That changes things for your franchises. Well, I, I, I think the good news is it goes a long way toward building a 30-team league because then, obviously, more teams are in a position to compete for personnel and the ultimately success of the franchise will be measured by management. Oh, always luck and, and, and unluckiness is thrown in there, but it's you don't have that built-in advantage that certain markets once had because, again, and as I talk to players around the league, 
They either want to stay or go to markets that where there's a winning culture, where they believe that in the, in the general manager ownership and the coach, and you know again where they believe that they can be successful, and it forces every team in the league then to be on the top of its game and to be out there constantly competing. We also have shorter contracts than we used to historically, and that cuts both ways. In some ways, it may make it more likely that you may lose a great player. But on the other hand, for the well-managed teams that constantly are looking for new talent, need to rebuild, it means there are more players in the marketplace. I mean, for example, roughly 40% of the players in the NBA will be free agents this summer. So it gives it, it's, it's cause for a lot of hope and for a lot of franchises. With that being the case, and there being so much interest in that movement, especially here in New York, obviously, this summer, um, are you happy or are you okay with the way player movement is being handled? And do you have any concern about player control of player movement? I'm okay with it. I, I think I, of course, support a player once he becomes a free agent and, and his right then to choose the market that has um, cap room and, and interest in him. On the other hand, of course, um, it drives us all crazy when there are public trade demands or players that are doing whatever they can to force themselves out of existing contracts. That's something you never want to see as a league. You want con contracts to be honored on both sides, both from player standpoint and from management standpoint. And those are the sort of things we're constantly talking about in collective bargaining, both to incentivize guys to honor their contracts and incentivize them where possible to, to give the incumbent team a benefit in re-signing those players, but also to extend a player chooses to leave to make sure it happens pursuant to a set of rules that we've established with the union. And obviously there have been some high-profile exceptions. I mean, you know from covering this sport for a long time, it's certainly nothing new no. for star players to demand trades. But I, I think part of it is everything is so amplified in these days, too, that you know a, a, a trade demand even, you know, that's that's not that that's made in a in a small publication or sort of on in and not on a major news program quickly becomes global news and i think we we have to adjust accordingly so uh, i'm i'm okay with where we are but i i think there's more we can do to ensure that you know contracts are honored and that everyone understands once a commitment is made to a team that short of um the team and then in, in some cases the players who have um, maybe no trade clauses until they agree that, that, that there's going to be movement, that there isn't sort of this constant chatter um, and, and, and public discussion about a player no longer wanting to be in the market they're in. In terms of the issue of player control, again, I just try to take a long view there. I think back sort of even in my early days in, in the league, which, which began in 1992, before we had a rookie scale, before we had the CBA system we now have in place, I mean, often it was the case that, that players refused to report to the teams that drafted them. There were far more players um, seeking to move in the middle of contracts. So I think taking um, a long view, we've, we're better than we once were. But again, I think w w work to be done. I think at the end of the day, players still can't trade themselves. Still, I think our teams are firmly in control um, in of managing their teams and, and deciding who they're going to sign and who they're going to trade. I mean, I think certain players in a league like the NBA are always going to have leverage. But but again, I think there's there's more probably we can do next time we sit down with the players just to 
ensure that uh, I think there's a little bit more stability around the league. Talking with Adam Silver, of course, the NBA commissioner, as we get ready for the final tomorrow night uh, as uh, Golden State and uh, Toronto get ready to play. Um, this was going to be a transition year. No LeBron. You know, uh, I, I was there, obviously, as everyone always wondered how the league would survive if there was no Jordan presence. Uh, how did you feel about your year in the postseason without LeBron? You know, we're very happy with where we are. I mean, I we missed LeBron, you know, and I, the good news, he's not gone. He had an injury and team struggled, and my, my sense is he'll be back in top form next season. But I, I think having lived through the Jordan years at the league, I think the big difference now from when when Michael ultimately stepped down as a player, when I look at the breadth of talent around the league, and I we could go on a long, long list of, you know, from, from the, the stars of the Warriors to to Russell Westbrook, to Paul George, to, to you know, Joel Embiid, to Ben Simmons. I mean, it's, it, it, it's a long list of stars now in this league, and including up-and-coming stars like Porzingis and, you know, Luka Doncic and, you know, Zion coming into the league next year, that I think we've got so much talent that while, you know, a player like, like LeBron not being in the playoffs, let alone the finals, no doubt has an impact on our business that we're, I think we're will, really well prepared for the future just because you know we're also from where when michael left the league now we're at a point where 25 percent of our league of our players were born outside the united states so it's a much larger pool of players we're pulling from and i think anybody who who watches the league and also from when michael retired till now when you can sit with your iphone with our league pass and watch any game in any city around the league that's that's on and, and live and great high quality video just a, there's a lot more basketball action for people to take in. So I, I feel really good about the future of the league. You know, you mentioned already, you know, the idea of uh, watching it on your iPhone. We know with the world, the technology, we, what we live in now. We also know that gambling, and you've been at the forefront of that, is going to take a much bigger, bigger role. Uh, in your mind, how does this challenge the in-game experience and does it threaten the in-game experience as far as being in the ballpark itself? I don't think it threatens the in-game experience because what we're seeing, and it's, and it's a little bit counterintuitive, uh, honestly. Like if you had asked me this question, you know, 10 years ago where I thought attendance would go, I would have said, hmm, you know, it's probably going to go down because the cost of these large HD screens are coming down. The quality of telecasts are so much better. It'll be a better experience in your living room. People can watch the games. I wouldn't know sure I would have predicted so easily on their phone 10 years ago, but I would have said, therefore, it's going to put a lot of pressure on attendance. In fact, things have gone the opposite way. In the last four years, we've had the highest attendance in the history of this league. And, and I think it's a result of a few things. One is our teams have stepped up. They've done a better job with the in-arena experience. I mean, you know, here in New York, um, both out in, in Barclays and at the Garden, the quality of the food's gotten much better. The quality of the service has gotten better. Um, the inter- in-game entertainment, whether that's the dancers, the halftimes, the singing, both arenas added these humongous HD scoreboards. So it's a much better experience in arena. And, and then I'd add, I think increasingly as people are spending more time on not just watching screens, but watching individual screens. And I see it with our players where headphones on, staring down at their phones, texting, or maybe watching video, that people still have a hunger for a communal experience. And so I think what's happening in our arenas, there are these modern-day town halls in which people, 
in, in some ways, they almost like a house of worship. You know, when you, you see church attendances down around the country, people still are looking for places to, to be with others and to, to where there's a common denominator, where they're cheering together, um, you know, or, or pissed off together, whatever it might be. But that that's what I see as I travel around the league. I mean, as I said, it, our arenas are, you know, 93, 94% full. We don't have that many more tickets to sell, even at very high prices. And people, people, I think, as I said, really desire that communal coming together, that experience. And there's very other places in, in our society these days where people are spending so much time head down looking at screens where you can replicate that. And also, clearly, what we're looking at is all this gambling, which is going to be a factor. Uh, all the uh, fantasy games are going to be, and the challenging games of just you know mind games for players and and stuff like that. And it's a fine line, Adam, with that because it's, obviously it adds to a level of scrutiny that you've always had for your players and officials. But it even heightens that if everyone's going to be so conscious of so many different things from a wagering standpoint. Also. Where does the participation end for the players and the officials? I, I wonder in the future, like, can they play fantasy games? Can they not play fantasy games? Do they have to stay removed completely from this process, even though it's around them 24 hours a day? It's kind of a hard thing to ask of your players and your people who work in your league who have to be almost uh, beyond reproach. Well, that's right. I mean, under our current rules, they're restricted from um, participating in anything that would qualify as sports betting. I mean, there may be some free fantasy games, you know, that, that are, are exceptions. But I think pretty much everything you're talking about is covered, and it's a trade-off. I think certainly the players understand, and so do the officials. We don't get a lot of pushback. I think it's in, in return for, you know, the ability to have incredible lives by being part of it, but be part of the NBA. Again, whether they're playing, officiating, coaching, or in the front office, they recognize that in, in no way can they be not only not betting on NBA games, but participating by providing information or anything else. I mean, I, I often use the analogy, I think there are lots of people involved in businesses which disable them from trading stocks or stocks right. in particular companies or industries, and it's, and, and it's a trade-off. I think here, you know, first and foremost, um, in terms of the kinds of interest we're seeing in sports betting, it, it, if it's not on the up and up, people aren't going to be interested. I think, we've, what, frankly, whether you're a better or you're not, if, if you thought what you're watching is an honest competition, I, I mean, there there could be some theater around something that's not, but for the most part, for professional sports, it would go away. People need to understand it and, and have Absolutely. and have that core belief that that it's it's fair competition. And so, I I think what's happening now with with the advent of legalized sports betting, it's happening now. What's happened with the Supreme Court decision? They've left it to the states. So already there are roughly ten states that have legalized um, sports betting in the U.S. But it's a hodgepodge of regulations. I mean, it's, frankly, in some ways, it's, it's imposed somewhat of a burden on us because it's not a consistent set of regulations nationally. But of course, I mean, I, I think on balance, it's good for us. I think we're better off having legalized sports betting where we do have access to data, where it can be regulated, where if there's aberrational behavior, just like with a stock market, in the same way, if there's some something odd going on in NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange, flags go up and they investigate. And we've had those discussions with them. Same thing with legalized sports betting. If there's an unusual amount of action on a particular game, and increasingly a lot of the betting comes in play while the game's going, if there's somebody who typically doesn't bet, or as I said, an unusual amount of money, it you know the, the computer spits it out right away, and we start investigating. And that's as opposed to the jurisdiction that that the, the system that's in place now, where it's virtually all underground, 
probably a lot of that same betting is happening, but there's no transparency for the league, so we have no idea what's happening. So, and and we we've learned a lot from European soccer because there, it's it's essentially always been legal as, as it is obviously in Las Vegas in the U.S. and from the international soccer leagues. I mean, we're adopting a lot of the same systems they have in place where they're in legal jurisdictions where they have relationships with the betting companies where when inappropriate activity is happening it's it's in in real time supplied to the leagues it causes them in some cases to switch out ref, referees or umpires or whatever else sometimes it causes them to go into the locker room and talk to players maybe do an investigation but i, I as i said i think we're we're much better off with a a regulated transparent jurisdiction than one that is viewed at least on its face as illegal but one where it's essentially stopping no one, especially with the internet and where, you know, there's literally hundreds of billions of dollars bet illegally. How much is, how, how important is this that the league, such as yourself, in your mind, and you've been on the forefront of this, uh, how important is it that this is something that uh, you as a league are a part of? I mean, how much do you feel it's going to be impact your revenues? you think it's going to be a major impact on your revenues or less than a major impact on your revenues? I think it's going to be, from a direct revenue standpoint, smaller impact than some people might think. Meaning, you know, to the extent we sell our official data to the sports betting organizations or we receive some sort of royalty for intellectual property, it will be significant, but not all that material to our business. I think where the the real impact will come is through additional engagement. I right. think just keeps I think people all engaged this, to the game no matter what. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think, right. you know, I, you know, in, in the United States, I mean, I, I assume this is true. I read it in USA Today that there were 60 million brackets for the NCAA tournament, basketball tournament. That were I believe that. Out yeah. in the U.S. And I think we all know, I mean, if you fill out a bracket, you're in it in a way you're not. It, and, and even if that bracket is a, you have a $5 bet or it's just a gentleman's bet or whatever else, you care a lot more when you're skin in the game. It's just like business. They use that same expression that, you know, when you have skin in the game and invest, as an investor, you care a lot more, even even as an, an employee who has a skin in the game. And I think here, to the extent that a, 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 some, a fan can have more of a direct interest in the outcome of the game, it creates more engagement. And, I, I, and it's not lost on me. I'm sure some of your, your thinking or some of your listeners, well, that comes with some risk as well. It does, and yeah. we recognize that. I'd only say that the risk is there already because, because the Internet has been so disruptive to the sports betting industry, just like every other industry. As I've been saying for years, if you go to Google and you put in BetNBA, there are literally thousands of sites. That, yes. um, and, and according to estimates, because it's not technically legal, to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars no are being bet uh, no overall in sports. So if we have a choice, as I said, between illegal and legal, we're going to take the legal, ju- legal jurisdiction. And I don't want to run from the fact, too, that we think that a fee should come to the NBA. We, we will spend roughly $8 billion this year all in creating this product, paying you know thousands of employees in arenas, paying our players, um, producing every aspect of the NBA. And in return for that, our, our view is for the very intellectual property, for for the content that is being used to bet, we should receive some sort of royalty for that. Yeah, that's going to be an interesting fight. It is because obviously through all the years, and they are state by state now, which doesn't help you guys because you guys have never paid Vegas anything all these years, and, and they've always been in business. So it's going to be an interesting fight as far as that's concerned per state. 
to see how that right. – uh, it would be much easier for you guys if it was a federal commission, which I don't think it will be because it's never been in boxing. It's never been in horse racing. It will be hard to do this way too. I think it will be – the way they set it up, it looks like it's going to stay state for state. I, I think too, and I, and I recognize I'm a realist here. I'm not sure how high up it is on anyone's list in Congress right gotcha. now to, to hey, be the promoter of national sports as, betting. As far as the structure of the league now, you know um, – People wonder about divisions and conferences and alignments and, and what you look to the future. Is that something that's on your, uh, on your board as, far, as something you're looking at? Would you make any radical changes as far as uh, divisions and, and conferences and how you structure your, your teams? We're looking at it. Uh, w- one of the issues keeps, that keeps coming up is whether or not we should see 1 through 16 for the playoffs as opposed right. to obviously two conferences, 1 through 8 in each conference. The issue, as I've said, has been, at least up to this point, travel as opposed to tradition. Because I understand that some of the traditionalists say you shouldn't mess with it. This is the history of the league. The records won't be as meaningful. We've had a history of Western Conference, Eastern Conference. I think from that standpoint, while I'm respectful of tradition, I think at the same time you have to change with the times. And in the same way, you know, I was telling somebody the other day, even in terms of a baseball all-star game, when I was growing up, Yankee fan, watch an all-star game. You saw all these players you never otherwise saw. You pretty much only saw your team play. Once in a while, you know, when your team played another team, you might see them, but there wasn't widespread availability of, of, of televised games. Now, if you're a kid growing up, you follow the NBA, you watch any player anytime you want to watch them. I mean, whether it's because you have access to League Pass, whether it's because, you know, it's House of Highlights or ESPN or, you know, NBA.com, you name it, you can go see any highlight, any time you want. And so All-Star Game becomes me- less meaningful than it was. I think in the same way, you know, young people especially don't see comp- conference competition the way we did. I, the, the issue, though, what I keep coming back to is travel. Because travel is a we big factor. See, schedule, too. You'd have to change the schedule yeah, enormously. Yeah, first of all, we'd have to have a balanced schedule, presumably. Correct. So number one. Right. And then n- n- number two, that just in the playoffs alone, we estimate that sort of you just sort of randomly um, – place the, the, the different teams into a 1 through 16 um, uh, setting uh, you, you bracket and you, go, and, and you play it out, you're looking at roughly 40% more travel than we Easy. have now. I mean, Easy. obvious I, thing is, you know, you begin, you know, L.A., Boston, first round, Portland, Miami, et cetera, right. et cetera. And, so, and, and also the teams on the coast are, are hurt more. And the thing we also under, have a better understanding now of now that we didn't used to is the impact of the travel on players. I mean, it's one of the reasons why you know, you mentioned earlier, I mean, we've, we've really stretched out the schedule, fewer back-to-backs. We've completely eliminated four games out of five nights because, you know, you can just see that the wear and tear on the players and the fact that, you know, even, even talking about sports betting, you can even see what the impact that back-to-backs, you know, multiple oh, no games in a row a has even on the line because they know players, yeah, are, players are just tired. And yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. If, so I, I'm, we're really reluctant then. And I hear it from the fans about seeding 1 through 16, but at the same time, if it co- comes at the cost of not just players being fatigued, but then there's the correlation of fatigue and injury. So, so the, the answer is I, I don't think a radical change is about to come, but we're, we're paying a lot of attention to it. And, you know, I've, I've been saying a few things recently about just the format generally of the regular season. And it may be, again, back to maybe to learn a little bit from international soccer, English Premier League in particular, that... Mid-season tournaments may make sense. Um, a play-in tournament, you know, for the bottom-seeded team, for, for teams that are right outside the current um, 
bracket. Yeah, for, that was for, my for next question. How about how about the idea of a loser bracket that would send a team in, that would slot a team and keep teams alive, where you could even take everybody who didn't make it in those sixteen and maybe have two of them qualify for the postseason. You know, if you know, if they won a tournament, even if it was two games or two out of three or something like that. Is that something that even – it would create a lot of interest. As long as you're not the head of marketing with the loser bracket. But, uh, you know, we, yes. Yeah, you no, know, I, I understand. Think, but, yeah, that, that's you, you something. Know what, but, you know, that would actually be interesting, though. I think it would – it also would – it would end tanking and it would – or at least curtail tanking. Uh, you still have a little of it when you have that special player. But for the most part, it would create a lot of interest at the end of the season for those teams. No, absolutely. That, that is – you know, the so-called play-in tournament is something we've been talking a lot about at the league. And, and you're right. It would have a double benefit, one of – dramatically disincentivizing tanking and guys presumably then would be playing to get into the playoffs. You could have a situation where teams are playing for higher draft picks. Um, or a team and, that was injured early in the season that made a late run but didn't fall, yeah. fell short, that kind of thing. We love that idea. So, so yeah, and, and, so, and, and it would independently create a really interesting competition. So, there, there's a lot of reasons for us to be taking a serious look at, at, at Would at all you be able ideas. to do that without knocking games off your regular season? <laughs> well, that's a good question. And so, like, for me, I, I step back. I think that the schedule we have now, which is roughly, you know, mid to late October, running through mid-June, seems about right. Although I'd say, you know, we have an 82-game regular season that's been in place since the mid-60s. That That's not set in stone. I mean, there's no science behind that. It's just... That's the tradition. That's the schedule we've been playing for 50 years. My sense is that I wouldn't want to push it too much more in terms of games on player bodies. I mean, we already have various resting protocols around the league that we're sort of focused on with the players and, and the teams in terms of what is appropriate and what isn't. But putting that aside, I think that if we were to add... Well, well first of all, what's interesting, you have roughly half the teams now that stop playing completely. In April, obviously they don't make the playoffs. And then you have another group of teams that, that continue on. I mean, for example, the Golden State Warriors, by virtue of having been in the finals four years in a row, have in essence played a full additional season. Oh, LeBron probably played two and a half years in the yeah. last eight years. It, it, yeah. Exactly. But what's interesting, and, you know, LeBron had an injury, but I, you know, I don't know whether that correlates at all with the number of games he played. You know, I mean, he's, he's been remarkably healthy throughout his career. And even if you look at the Warriors, obviously Durant had that injury, but he's recovering from it fairly quickly, and at least it sounds like he'll be back during the finals. So that, like, one thing we're trying to pay a lot of attention to is what is the real sort of the, the science uh, on correlations between length of season, number of minutes, and injuries. I mean, obviously, guy, if, he's, if, you're, if, if to get injured playing basketball, you have to be playing basketball. So, so if you play more games, that increases the likelihood. Well, I don't injury, think you're going to play more. But here's one thing I've I've always stated, and I've never been wrong. No one's ever cut a schedule, so you guys, your owners, never will cut gate receipts. So they've never cut a regular. I have not in all my life in sports, which is now 40 years, have I seen anybody short in a regular season. Well, that's my point. I mean, so I, the the only thing I'd say is maybe we begin the season stays roughly the same length, but I could see if we were going to add a midseason tournament add a play-in tournament, maybe then you would cut in certain places in the regular season. I even think to you make could, room for especially that. It. No, exactly. And also my earlier point about all-star games. I mean, we, we love our sort of all-star 
weekend and all the events around it. And it's a, you know, because we don't have a neutral site championship. So it's a date certain, a location certain where everyone in the NBA community, increasingly global, can make plans and all come together. So we like that aspect of it. But it's, it's no secret. The All-Star game itself has become a bit of an afterthought. Uh, and and then the question is, all right, if if the players aren't into it in the way they once were, the fans aren't into it in the way they once were, maybe, again, let's use that All-Star weekend, the days that we have off before, the days we have off afterwards, and maybe we can create a more interesting competition. I like that idea. I do think All-Star games have long, because of the reasons you stated, everybody plays everybody, everybody sees everybody. The days of the All-Star game, are past, and the only sport that even produces a reasonable all-star game is baseball because they can bring defense to their game no one else can. So, I mean, that's the reason. The other all-star games are awful. I don't like yours. I, I've i never watched the Pro Bowl. So I agree with you on that because you can't play defense because of injury in these other games. So uh, I agree with you. So the, 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 one who, the one who takes that and uses it will be very smart. I mean, I'm sure you're thinking of things, but that would be a nice way to utilize the time. It really would. If you could come up with something that makes sense or at least use those days to add something at the end of the season. Were you content, we're talking about Adam Silver, were you content with the lottery the way it worked this year? I was. I mean, it, it's interesting. I mean, people in New York... You didn't deliver like the, you were supposed to, you know. This, before the, the lottery, they kept coming conspiracy up... Conspiracy theorists had you, of course, delivering Zion to New York, which I, you didn't do. So I know, and, and well, I, I wasn't the guy hold, holding the cards. But, but putting that aside, you know, be, before the lottery happened, people in New York would come up to me and say, what are the next chances? i say 14%. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? I said, it's, it's math. It's 14%. Wink, wink. And wink, therefore, wink. it's 86% chance they weren't going to get the first pick. So yeah. actually, the Knicks, it, under our system, got fairly lucky. And they ended up with the third pick. And if you look at the projections on, on who the top three picks are, I think, it, it, at least on paper, the Knicks have done very well. But weren't you the guy who bent the Ewing envelope anyway? <laughs> Wasn't that you? You were there then, weren't you? <laughs> That was the other guy. Oh, that was the other guy. Okay. I mean, yeah. but so people were expecting that for Zion this year. And it is quite ironic that with everything that's gone on in New Orleans this year, Zion winds up there, which says there's something prophetic about that. There really is. The, that the with what's going on with that franchise. Karma. Yeah, it is. Yeah. There is something to that. That with one guy busting out, there's another guy who winds up in the same city. So it is, it is fascinating from that standpoint. Uh, city expansion, uh, movement, anything on the horizon as far as any of that? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. I mean, it's it's uh, certainly no plans uh, at this time to expand. I mean, there's some great markets out there that maybe is there we'll a get market worthy of a team? Sure. I mean, I mean, that, I I, don't, I, w- I won't go market by market, but there's right. no question there is. I think the bigger issue for the league right now is, you know, not only are we happy with 30 team league, but I mean, it, I'm very focused on ensuring that we have. 30 competitive teams it'd be hard to say with a straight face we have 30 competitive no teams one right does. now obviously no we one don't. does in any sport right and and but then the question becomes if you're expanding what's the real reason you're expanding and i think in the u.s are you cre- you know creating a larger footprint for media not necessarily i you know obviously leagues expand for expansion fees but truth be told i think our owners are feeling pretty good about the league right now and another way of looking at expansions you're selling equity in your league and i think especially with this being so global right now if we expand the u.s we're selling we're selling a part of our future in china india africa europe etc and i think again we'll turn back to expansion at some point it's just it's not on the table right now you know, I, I went it more as instead of expansion, because I, I agree there's no need for that, more in case of is there a safe haven for a team that's struggling? Are there markets that are viable or we have exhausted them? No, there, there's, again, I mean, 
they're, they're definitely, I, I don't want to go market by market, right. but I mean, anybody could just look and see where are their major league sports franchises where the NBA isn't right now, including markets that once had NBA successful right. NBA franchises that no longer do. So those, those markets are out there. It's, 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 it's more a function of us just not looking at expansion or relocation at the moment. Are you comfortable with the college relationship right now? I am to the extent though, that the college community, you remember Condoleezza Rice ran a commission, came out with a recommendation that we return to 18 as the minimum age in the league. I hear them on that. I, I, I flipped my view on that. I think when I first became commissioner, I thought maybe we should be going older. You know, we had negotiated with our Players Association to go from 18 to 19, 11 or 12 years ago. And I thought maybe we should even be at 20. I think as I'm from the sidelines watching some of those recent cases in New York, some of the corruption cases around sort of involving shoe money and, and, and influence in terms of where players go. And then as I talked to some of the college coaches about um, the actual experience, and I'm really focused on the, the one-and-done players, it seems like the college community is now saying to the NBA, take back those one-and-done players. They're better off just declaring themselves as pros at 18, playing basketball full-time. That doesn't mean literally playing basketball full-time, but devoting themselves full-time to becoming professional players. The stakes are so high the, the the money is so big in the NBA that and 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 I think the colleges again we're really we're talking about you know eight to ten players that out of you know three hundred fifty one Division one programs and you know four forty five hundred Division one men alone so it's it's it they're they're incredibly impactful players but they're just a dent in the overall college system and so I've I've changed my view I'm now at the point where I believe that we should be taking those players directly out of high school it still needs to be negotiated with our Players Association. We've begun discussing it, and, and my sense is we'll get something done. You have, um, we're talking about Adam Silva, you know, you have uh, probably utilized social media with the relationship between building your stars on social media better than any other league. Uh, your stars are household names more than other leagues. I think part of it is their visibility. A lot of it is the sneakers. Uh, there's no question. Uh, but, I mean, you know that's the case uh, is that still as as resourceful as it was, say, five or six years ago? Or is it now with the the way it's even gone to your – where players now are sometimes having phones during the game, it, has it become a nuisance? Well, it's in terms of its impact, it's even – it's significantly greater than it was five years ago. I'll give you a number. It's even – I find it astounding. This past season, we've had 1.6 billion people connect – with the NBA, its teams, and its players through social media, one point six I mean, it's, billion. One point six billion. It's 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 essential. It's six hundred and fifty million people in China alone who are connecting um, with some aspect of the NBA through social media. So there's no doubt. It's ha- I mean it's 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 not a, it's unlike anything in the history of the world. Now there's some negative consequences that come from it. Some having nothing to do with sports, but some in terms of the, the, the impact it has on players. You mentioned players having phones during games. And also I, players I think, making remarks they wish they could take back yeah, and so, everything else, right? Well, so so there's that. And, and in some way, their ability, you know, to have in many cases tens of millions of social media followers and, you know, just to sort of tweet or post something right. quickly and not have thought it through, obviously that can have an impact on them. But maybe even more importantly, what we're seeing, in it, and it's kind of typical of their generation, it's having... An impact, at least for some of our players, on their mental wellness. 
that it, it sort of goes to the point I was making earlier about screens. It, it, it isolates them. And, and it, you know, it isolates them from their teammates. It isolates them from friends because their, their heads are down, headphones are on. And so that's something we're paying a lot of attention to in the league to, to ensure because we're dealing with a very young workforce and, and to, to, to help them through those issues and to make sure that they're limiting their screen time and they're, 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 they're not being captivated from it because there's, there's so much, if, if you're a public figure and, and you obviously deal with it, yep. that yep. there's a, a lot of negativity out there. A and tremendous if you, amount. And, yeah. and, 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 and the more you don't famous have you are, the worse it is. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and if you, and what's been shocking to me, and I think finally, I think teams are cracking down on it. There were several teams in the league where players during halftime of games, I mean, they, they've, we had a rare situation where a player, right. I think, looked at a device on the bench. But usually, there were some teams where, at halftime, guys would pick up their phone, look at their messages, look at texts. But you can imagine if you're performing and somebody says something, like, you know, something about the way you're shooting, the way you're acting, the way you do something, and it gets into their head. It can be, especially if it's from someone you trust, it can be worse than trash talking. You know, and it's it interesting... The impact, you're right. I mean, they can, and you don't want them anyway. You don't want them during a game, especially of any magnitude or any game. You don't want your players dealing with the outside world through the phone during the game anyway. Even at halftime, you don't want them discussing the game with anybody. Right. Of course not. So I think in some cases, you know, I some of this is left to, for for teams to regulate. Some of it is controlled by the league. But I mean, this is such a, such a dramatic change in the world. I think in some ways we're just catching up with it. So I think. Net net is very positive for the league. It's very positive for the players in terms of, and it also it, it allows them to be multi-dimensional people because I think what we're seeing in the league, you, you were mentioned earlier. I mean, the, the enormous number of household name players in this league. You have a lot amazing, of because, I can yeah, tell yeah. from my teenagers, my boys who are twelve and fourteen, they know they might know some players in other sports, and they will they know a lot because they they go to different sports and everything, but they know every NBA player. Every right. single one. No, it, it's quite remarkable. And what and what's so amazing is not only do they know they who they are, but it's highly likely they know something more about them. They do. They especially with the international players, they they know where they're from. They 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 know about their family. They know what music they listen to. They they know in some cases what car they drive. They know sort of their political opinions. I mean, it's and when talk about engagement, when we can through social media, through conventional marketing, demonstrate that these are truly multi-dimensional young men. They're not just ball players. That creates enormous additional engagement with our fans. Well, listen, I've kept you a long time. A good look in the finals uh, should be. I know you're not going to give me a prediction, but it uh, should it should be interesting uh, to watch. And uh, a anything anything different in terms of presentation for Game One because Canada is involved. Is there anything special or just? Uh, Regular business, Canadian national anthem. <laughs> U.S. That, anthem, yes. but no, nothing else besides that. Um, you know, I, I do think it's particularly exciting because it's our first time, you know, playing a finals game in Toronto. But uh, other than that, I, th- I think the competition is going to be base. terrific. They're, they're a raucous fan base. They really are yeah, too. So. They really are. Anyway, well, listen. Thanks for a couple minutes. Good luck. Enjoy the finals. Yeah. Thanks for your interest, Mike. Thank you very much. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. 
Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.